how important is history to you? How important is history to you? When um, I was a kid in high school, I hated history. History was like the most boring subject there was. I even prefer French over history. Sorry, Sebastian. Well, it's a good thing, I guess. Um, so I just maybe it's just because I was like an arrogant young male that I thought the world revolved around me. So who, who needs to worry about anyone else? Like, we were here now. Now's the time. We've got all the skills and abilities. And I don't know what it was. I just I found history boring. The most vivid memory I have of high school history, we had a class called World History, was doing a project on a place called Erewhon. We, we had a brief description of this place and we had to make a travel brochure for it. And we go away and spend our time making this travel brochure um, for a world history class of this place called Erewhon. Now, do you know where Erewhon is? No, neither did we. It's nowhere, backwards. Erewhon, nowhere. That's what I remember. Nothing. Like, seriously, we did a project about a place called Nowhere Backwards. Uh, that's my most vivid memory. Was, I remember going to class and finding out this place didn't even exist. I'm like, what a waste of my life. And it just proved my point. History was just boring. Who'd want to do it? But it does beg the question, is history worth knowing? Is there any value in it? Any point to it? One part of history that does matter a lot to me uh, is my family history. So my mum, she was adopted, so I don't really have any idea of my family on my mum's side. Past my mum, I've, I've got no idea. But on my dad's side, I do, and on my dad's side um, is where an important piece of, of history comes to bear on me. See, my dad's dad died of a heart attack when he was 48. Now that means that in my family, in my genes, is the possibility of a heart attack. Is that I actually need to think through the way I live. The history of what happened to my dad's dad and hopefully won't happen too soon to my dad, but could actually happen to me. And so history suddenly gets very personal. Well, as we open the pages of Deuteronomy today, we go to get a history lesson. But it's not just any old history lesson about nowhere. It's a history lesson that's about life and death. Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land, uh, on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. He's about to start a speech that will kind of envision and motivate and equip God's people as they go to war with all the nations that they're about to go in and take the land from them, the promised land. But you kind of, as you're about to hear this speech, you're thinking, what would you say, you know? Would I be standing there going, I have a dream? What, what would you say to get people excited? There's no new direction, no kind of amazing new revelation, no shaking ground. Uh, what we get is a history lesson. At the centre of the most vitally important information to these people entering into the promised land is history. Not some history about nowhere, the history and the activity of the true and living God. Let me fill you in on the story so far. Forty years earlier, uh, a bit more, they'd, they'd left Egypt, God's people. They'd grown to over a million people, uh, descendants of really Abraham. Uh, they were in Egypt, they were there, they, they kind of wanted to get out, they were in slavery. Uh, Pharaoh said, no, you can't leave. And God said, I want my people to go. And then there were these ten plagues, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hails, locusts, darkness. And then the firstborn son of all those who didn't put blood of a lamb on the door of their, of their, of their house died. That's what it took to make Pharaoh say, yes, you can go. 
They called that the Passover, and that's a meal that Israel became kind of classic remembrance of God's working and what he'd done. They then left, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, right? The the waters parted, they went across. Sounds like a far-fetched story, but this was the generation that saw it with their eyes. They ended up at a mountain called Horeb, or Mount Sinai, and then God spoke, gave them the Ten Commandments, and this is where we're at. Moses is now looking back 40 years. It's a short history lesson, only 40 years long, but what they're going to be told is of immense importance to them. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 1. We're going to read through lots of the Bible today. There'll be some on the screen or you can read in your Bible. That's fine. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp, advance into the hill country of the Amorites, go to all the neighboring people in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, along the coast, and to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. (coughs) What God said at the point we began the history lesson had to do with a promise. A promise. I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that I have given you. This promise was that God would give this land that they're looking out into to these people, these descendants of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. God had promised Abraham what he promised to Isaac, what he again promised to Jacob, he would give to the descendants standing there. This promise is so important that I just want to spend a second, a little aside, and kind of look at this promise See, this promise is the key to understanding all of the Bible. Don't know if you've thought about that before. This is the key thing that holds the New Testament and the Old Testament together. If you understand the point I'm about to explain to you, then you've actually got the key for understanding the whole Bible. I'm not saying that it becomes easy, you're like, great, everything's nice and clear now. But this is what everything is in reference to. Have a look with me at Genesis 12. Again, the flick back, or it'll be on the screen. Here is the first time God spoke this promise. This is what he said. The Lord had said to Abraham, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go into the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Do you see what God promised to this man? Promised he'd bring him into a land. He promised that in that land, he would make his descendants as great as the stars in the sky. He promised that through this great nation, he would bring blessing to the whole earth. And this blessing would actually reach every single person that existed. There is the statement that explains God's purpose of history. That's why the descendants of Abraham are actually important in the Bible. It's because of what God promised he would one day do through this nation. That's why when you get to this point in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying this bit of history, this promise, is so important. But it's not just Moses that thinks it's important. The writers of the New Testament kind of keep picking this promise up over and over. In Galatians 3, Paul is there explaining what, is it, what it means to be a Christian. 
but the believing, so the being a Christian has to do with believing God, trusting in God, believing what God has promised. Listen to how he argues his point. Um, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham in that all nations will be blessed through you. There is the promise of Genesis 12 verse 2. The promise that Paul says is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, announced in advance. And do you know how God did it? Do you know how blessing actually came to reach all nations of the earth? It's because through that nation, Jesus came. One of the descendants of Israel was Jesus. And because of the good news of Jesus, the news of his death in our place, the rising again to offer us life, that has gone out into all the world. That blessing of God, the promised way back to relationship with God, is now reaching people on the other side of the globe Three and a half thousand years later, in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. That's the theme of the whole Bible. It's God's purpose to bring blessing into the world that he made. It's God's purpose to bring blessing to the people he made. And to do it through Jesus. Now I've got no idea why he chose to do it through Jesus. I can't give you the reason why he did it that way. He doesn't really say, but the point is, that's the way he's done it. He's done it through this one nation and through this one man who was God in the flesh. Now, whenever you read any passage of the Bible, uh, if you ask, what's it got to do with God's promise to Abraham? And how is that fulfilled in Jesus? Then you begin to understand what the passage is really about. You can actually come away and see how every part of the Bible is actually connected with Jesus that this promise was pointing forward. Because every part of the Bible, every part of the Old Testament has something to do with that promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of that promise. That's the key to understanding your Bible, is think, how does this work? How does this show me how it fulfills the promise to Abraham and points me to Jesus? Well, back to Jeremy 1. What we're going to see here is that this particular part of the Old Testament has in view one part of the promise to Abraham, one specific bit of entering into that promised land. What's on view at this particular time isn't all of it, but the specific bit of getting land. So have a look at verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter 1. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what I want us to pick up here is something, I don't know, I didn't notice it at first. But in this promise, there's linked a command. Go in and take possession of the land. That's what God said. So when he speaks, he speaks a word of promise and a word of command. And the two are kind of linked. I'm giving this land into your hands, promise. Go and take possession of it, command. And you find that those who hear the word of God, right from Abraham all the way to us, are to respond to the word of God in faith, in trust, in obedience. If God makes a promise, we ought to believe it. 
If God makes a command, we should obey it. And we're going to see why in this very passage. That's pretty much the life of of a Christian, right? The day-to-day life of of what happens. We're people who believe in the promise of the gospel. The blessing that's come through Jesus. The the blessing of forgiveness of sins. The the blessing that we'll get to live forever. That we will rise like Jesus rose. That's the claim of the Bible. But at the same time, there are the demands of the gospel. If you trust Jesus to save you, that he has paid the price for, for our sin, for our turning our backs on God, then we need to trust him to lead us. We can't say, yes, save me, but then I know better about how to live. If you really trust he is who the Bible says he is, then you'll take him at his word. You'll let him rule us. So he's both saviour and Lord. You can't divorce the two. If you believe God's promise, then you'll obey his command. If you don't obey God's commands, then it's clear that you don't believe his promise. So I think the first thing Moses wants to recount in this history lesson to the Israelites is what God said to them back at Horeb, 40 years later. Go and take possession of this land. History is rooted in a promise. And that promise came with a command. Now, I want to spend another kind of sidetrack for a little bit because I think there's something important here as well. I just want to look at, this isn't the main line of what's happening, but I think it's a fantastic reminder to us. Um, Sometimes God's faithfulness to his promises leads to certain practical problems, things we've got to work out. Have a look at verse 9, 1 verse 9 of Deuteronomy. At that time, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me, this is Moses speaking, "to, to carry alone. Why is that? Well, verse 10, the Lord your God has increased you in numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky, the faithfulness of God. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he's promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise and understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. God's faithfulness to his promise has resulted in too many people for Moses. It's like, how can I do this? There's over a million people there. How can he lead over a million people on his own by himself? Now, I struggle to do the admin for church and and write studies and talks and meet with people. There's only like 60 of us, right? Moses had over a million. What am I complaining about? (laughs) Moses goes on to propose an organizational solution to this practical problem. He kind of delegates their leadership and comes up with a a particular structure. He he takes the leading men of each tribe and says, right, I'm going to set you up over thousands, and then there'll be people below who are after hundreds, and then fifties, and then tens, and tribal officials. But what I want to focus in on is not the kind of whatever practical solution he comes up with, but thinking through why he does it the way he does. The organization he comes up with has to reflect the purpose of God. The organizational structure that he sets up can't take over. It's got to fit in with and reflect and submit to God's purposes. So he says to the leaders in verse 17, do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Because that's what God's like. Don't be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you and I will hear it. See, it's the purpose of God that matters. So as Moses is faced with this particular organizational difficulty, as he sorts it out in a particular way, his very kind of key idea is to not lose sight of what God is doing. 
And as we start as a new church, and as we've kind of been growing and seeing people come to know Jesus and, and growing Him, we'll have all sorts of practical problems to God's faithfulness, to bring people in by His Word, to, con- to convince people of the truth, to grow people in their love and knowledge of Him. And it's so easy to lose sight of the main deal, of what God is actually doing, His plans, His purposes. And once we kind of set up organizational structures, it's easy to think that they're the thing that matters. No, we're supposed to be focusing on the God who is doing amazing things in His world. We're supposed to be focusing on the faithfulness of God to His price. And He has been so faithful, hasn't He? So, I want to skip now to uh, the third and final kind of section, which is really the most important and serious part of this history lesson. Have a look at verse 19 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb. We went toward the hill country of the Amorites and through all that vast and dreadful desert that you've seen, and we reached Kadesh by now. Then I said to you, You've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And here we see clearly the effect of God's promise. See, if someone promises you something, sometimes you believe them, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they're faithful, sometimes they're not. When the creator of the universe promises something, well, there is no need to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. God, the ruler of the world, has promised this will happen. You don't need to worry that it won't be fulfilled. Put yourself in Israel's shoes for a second. You've had every reason to be afraid of the Amorites. They're like gladiators, these guys. They're huge. It was their land. They're just going to give in and go, yeah, come on, take our place. We'll, we'll go somewhere else. It's going it's to be messy. It's going to be hard. And these guys were big. I don't know if they were ugly, but it's the kind of feel you get, right? These guys were kind of brutish. They were the muscleest of the kind of countries around them. They had powerful weapons of the day. Israel were camping in tents in the desert. These guys had fortified cities with walls right up. However, God's promise says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Believe God. Trust God. Act. Verse 22. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we had to take into the towns we'll come to. Now, I think it's immediately obvious but what you start seeing here is like this seed of doubt. This little little question coming in. Which way will we go? However, their doubts are met with encouragement from Moses. Verse 23, the idea seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe. They left, went up into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it's a good land that God, the Lord our God is giving us. Great. What should happen now? Right? What should happen? 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. 
They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. The gladiators, the kind of freaky ones. Disobedience and unbelief. Where does that come from? How does it happen? How does it happen that people who have heard the promise of God, that have seen God's faithfulness taking them out of Egypt, after ten plagues have kind of come on on, on everyone except them, after they've crossed the the Red Sea on dry land, after they've been in the desert and, and God has been leading them and everything he had said has happened, How does it happen that people come to disbelieve, who have seen such amazing things? It happens again and again, and it happens here. And they choose to take more notice of their circumstances, the things that are around them, than of God's promise. They heard the news, the spies who came back, didn't only tell them how good the land was, but how big the people were who lived in it. They told them how strongly fortified their cities were, with walls sky high. And as they thought about their circumstance, and the probability of what would happen, the promise of God quickly faded away. They stopped focusing on the word of God that had saved them so far, and started focusing on their situation, on They drew conclusions from their circumstances, from what they saw in front of them, forgetting what went on behind them. They lost heart. They found themselves distrusting God. Now, I reckon there'd be a good number of us here today that have seen exactly the same thing. Whether it's in your life or the lives of those around you, we know the promise of God, we've heard Him speak. We've seen what Jesus has done. We know that that Jesus has offered life and forgiveness because he's died for us, because it's happened in history. He's risen again, and we're convinced of that fact. We know God is at work in his world, bringing people to himself by the good news, by the gospel, men, women, and children, as they meet Jesus. But I bet you, you've found yourself in a circumstance where it just seems so unbelievable. I mean, is this really true? It seems impossible to believe that someone would really rise from the dead. Impossible to believe that God could fix up a world that is as messed up as ours, with as many problems as ours. Impossible to believe that just the news of what Jesus has done could actually change hearts and minds. Of friends and family. For me, in my stubborn ways, and my sinful habits, we start focusing on the circumstances and see, this is where I am, this is what I see. I know he's promised those things, but gradually, day by day, we start to disbelieve the promises of God. We start to believe that God maybe didn't mean what he said. Maybe they wrote it down wrong, maybe it wasn't passed on wrong. Actually, maybe God did say those things, but he's got some evil motive, and he's just trying to kind of pull us away and play with us like some sort of chess set. And before long, we kind of go, God hates us. Because I'm here in this situation, faced with these circumstances, and I cannot see a way through. 
The conclusion we draw from the seeming impossibility we're faced with is just like Israel. God brought me here because he hates me. He wants to make an example out of me. He's not going to give us the land. He's going to destroy us in the land. He he doesn't work for the good of those who love him. He's some sick, power-hungry dictator who is using me like just a pawn. He doesn't care. And here we find ourselves from time to time. As we believe those circumstances, as we take note of the situations we find ourselves, wondering if God's purposes for us are good after all. Wondering if what we've given up in order to follow the promises of the one who claims to be the God of the world can actually be compared with the gain that we will gain. Is this worthwhile? We wonder whether it's worth it. We've been caught up in something that was just a farce. I want to say, friends, how could we be, and I include myself here, how could we be so foolish? How could we be so foolish? What did these people need? Look at verse 29. Deuteronomy 1.29. Then I said, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. And there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. They needed what you and I need. They needed to hear God's promise again. To remember who was making this promise. And to hear what God had already done. What he had already done. What did they do? Verse 32. In spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and a cloud by day, to search out the places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. So often we turn away from Jesus and think there must be some other explanation. Did it really happen? We forget that Jesus was a historical figure, that that was history, that someone came and lived and died and rose again, and he claimed to be God and he claimed to offer us forgiveness. Relationship with the creator of the universe, life that lasts forever, amazing promises. And the command, trust me. Put your life in my hands. But unbelief is no small thing. When you find yourself not trusting God, when you find a friend whose trust in God is growing weak and shaky, I think sometimes you're like, yeah, that's just life. And it is. But have a look at the reality of what happens to those of us who don't trust I think we don't, I don't reflect enough on the consequences of what happens. After all that God has done, how dare I not trust him? After he sent his son to die for me on a cross at great expense to himself, how dare I not trust him? To what Moses is saying here, after all that God has done, Israel, how dare you? Doubt that God will keep his word. You've seen the way he acted with you. He brought you across the Red Sea. He brought you out of Egypt. He has taken you. He, how dare you distrust this God who made everything? 
that you have kind of been relying on for your very food and for your very lives. How dare you say you just want to take me out? How dare you doubt that God would not keep his word? Have a look at verse 34. When the Lord heard what you had said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, Moses says to Israel, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said will be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. There comes a point with God's word when it's too late. When you refuse to believe what God has promised, you refuse to take note of what he's already done, there becomes a point when God says, that's enough. Look at verse 41. Then you replied, we've sinned against the Lord. We'll go up and fight as the Lord God commanded us. So every one of us, uh, every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord. But he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent. They tried to do it. They tried to go in against God's word. When he said no, sorry, when God said do it, they said no. When God said don't, they're like, let's go. It just reminds me of me and my kind of desire to be my own man. My desire to go, look, oh, oh, I think, God, you've given me awesome promises before, but okay, now I'll listen to you all. And not just taking God at his word. Chapter 2, verse 14 says this. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp, as the Lord God had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to take unbelief as seriously as God does. This episode is picked up in a number of places through the New Testament. Remember what happened. If you want to look later, Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about this in detail. Um, What they try and do is they're trying to highlight the extraordinary seriousness of refusing to believe God. And the question we've got to ask ourselves and one another is, what more do you want God to do? Seriously, what more 
would you want God to do before you trust him? Before you take him at his word and follow him? Before you put his desires before your desires? What more do you need to be fully convinced that he loves you? To be fully convinced that he has your best interests at heart. What more do you want? What more do I want? Look at what God has done. He has made a promise over three and a half thousand years ago. He has kept that promise at massive cost to himself. That Jesus has died and offered us entry into the true promised land. Life with God forever. Jesus paid the penalty for you and me. He he faced God's anger towards us for what we have done so that we could stand in right relationship with God like he was. Yet we still want more. The future for those of us who reject God's promise, who refuse to believe God, will be like the fate of the people and worse. The people who died in the wilderness, who died in the desert. God does not take being ignored lightly. And why should he? He's he's done it all for us. He said, just trust me. But so often we are so arrogant and think the world revolves around us. Friends, we have a God that has acted throughout history. A God that has shown himself to us in so many ways. An amazing cost to himself. Offered us so much. And what he says is, trust me. Put your life in my hands. You can't can't deal with your own rebellion against me, but I have done that for you. When I reflect on what Jesus has done, when I see the fact that he died in my place, it makes me want to go, yes. How stupid have I been to not trust you? Now, you might have all sorts of questions, and that's good. We want to encourage questions. We're not saying, just, you know, shut your eyes and believe. But the point is, history, the history of Jesus is worth knowing. The history of Jesus is vitally important for the way we live. The history of Jesus will affect your eternity. So won't you join with us and struggle together as we trust the God who has saved us? Father God, you have been an amazing God throughout history. As we read the pages of the Old Testament, as we see the way you've acted, the way you've loved your people, despite your people ignoring you, despite your people rebelling against you and thinking they know better, Lord, we are reminded of what an amazing God you are. No powerful dictator that's just playing chess and using us as pawns, but a God who would pay the ultimate price so that we could know you. Father, help us to seriously look out, look at, check out history. To come and see the way Jesus has died. He's been raised to life and offers us life. And at the same time, the way he calls us to put everything at his feet. Lord, help us to do that. It's not easy to give up the reins of running our lives our way. We all struggle with it, Father, and at times feel like we always want to jump back in the driver's seat of our life. But, Father, convict us by your Spirit. As we come and look at your Word and we hear you speak, remind us of what an amazing God you are. 
a God that loves us and that cares for us. Lord, help us to put our lives in your hand, to live in a way that brings you praise, that shows that we, we, don't, we, don't, we haven't got it all sorted, but that Jesus does. And our lives are found there. Our future is found in him. All our hopes, all our dreams make sense because of who Jesus is. Father, captivate us through your Son, by your Word, so we might live for you. Amen.